Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure once again to uh, welcome back uh, Giuseppe Caruso, who is uh, at the Department of Maternal and Child Health and Urologic Science in the University of Rome and in La Sapienza in Rome, but now actually doing a, a one-year uh, internship visit at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, so we're speaking to him now from his new home in uh, Rochester, Minnesota. And the topic of this uh, discussion is going to be a really excellent review article that he and his team, uh, also uh, supported by Dr. Nicoleta Colombo, uh, wrote on the topic of myeloid neoplasms post-PARP inhibitors for ovarian cancer. It's a really great review. I really encourage everyone to, to read it. It has really outstanding um, graphics as well with regards to the pathogenesis of myeloid neoplasms and, and uh, suggestions on, on the treatment. So um, welcome, Giuseppe. Thank you very much, Professor. Always a great pleasure. Well, thank you so much again for accepting our, our invitation and thank you for being back on the podcast. Um, lots of questions that came up with regards to this topic and of course, obviously, uh, is a point of uh, discussion that uh, many times uh, patients will be asking uh, regarding about uh, these types of uh, neoplasms, the myeloid neoplasms after PARP inhibitors. So I wanted to start by um, uh, discussing what is the definition of a myeloid neoplasm and if you can tell us how, um, you know, how common uh, these are. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a, a niche topic in gynecologic oncology, but I'm very happy to discuss it today with you because uh, uh, it is an emerging issue. And uh, although it is a bit out of our expertise, we should raise awareness on myeloid neoplasiums post-PARP inhibitor. Uh, these neoplasiums are defined as uh, uh, clonal hematopoietic stem cell disorders characterized by unproductive hematopoiesis resulting in peripheral blood cytopenias. And they represent a very heterogeneous family of uh, diseases, including uh, myelodysplastic syndromes and acute uh, myeloid uh, leukemia. Um, these neoplasiums were traditionally considered uh, extremely rare and delayed adverse events in ovarian cancer patients, but now are gradually emerging as uh, challenging and life-threatening complications. And uh, this is also, but not only related to progressive use of PARP inhibitors as a maintenance treatment, and so to the cumulative exposure to cytotoxic therapies. Yeah. And Giuseppe, when, when patients get these neoplasms, and as, re, as you mentioned, it's rare to get it, and we'll get a little bit more into um, those details, but when they get these neoplasms um, and with a history of ovarian cancer, you know, certainly has... What is the what is the prognosis for for these patients? How well do they do? How poorly do they do? Yeah, well, unfortunately, the prognosis is very poor. Uh, the clinical course of myeloid neoplasiums post cytotoxic therapies is typically progressive and relatively resistant to conventional therapies. So, you know, the the median life expectancy is around eight months, and the five year overall survival is less than ten percent. So. Uh, the clinical outcomes are very poor despite intensive therapies. Yeah, so very important to talk about yeah. how to, how to uh, diagnose and, and treat them. Um, and you mentioned before that, you know, obviously there's there's increasing, there seems to be obviously an increase in use of PARP inhibitors uh, given the data that we're continuing to uh, to see in our field. 
Um, so it, it seems like the incidence of these myeloid neoplasms in patients with ovarian cancer has also been increasing. Is it all attributed to the use of PARP inhibitors and that increase in the use of PARP inhibitors? No, not only actually because, uh, yeah, the incidence has, has been uh, gradually increasing over the last few years, but this trend can be explained for, uh, by several reasons. You have first the global population aging, and as you know, these disorders predominantly affect elderly people. Then, of course, there's the improved overall survival of uh, ovarian cancer patients receiving PARP inhibitors, which as a consequence, on, on one hand, it uh, increases the overall treatment burden, and on the other, it widens the, the time window within which such uncommon events can be detected. Uh, then, of course, uh, now we have uh, uh, the, a longer exposure to PARP inhibitors, so we are collecting long-term follow-up data on PARP inhibitors. Uh, we have also expanding indications for PARP inhibitor beyond ovarian cancer, so uh, including also brace, prostate, and pancreatic cancers. And finally, there's also, I would say, uh, a raised awareness of post-marketing drug safety surveillance. So all these reasons potentially contribute to the, to the increased incidence. Very well. So as you know, we uh, often ask questions from our uh, fellows in the journal. <clears throat> this question is from uh, Giulio Bonaldo, as uh, you know, uh, in yeah, um, yeah. Italy. Um, and he wrote, um, with the, you, you specifically address that uh, new, more precise terminology should be used, um, which is myeloid neoplasms post-PARP inhibitors rather than PARP inhibitor related. Could you explain this? Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's yeah. behind this new classification? Yeah, uh, terminology has been recently revised um, in the new fifth edition of the WHO classification of uh, hematolymphoid tumors, tumors, myeloid neoplasiums arising secondary to the exposure of uh, cytotoxic therapies are now defined as uh, myeloid neoplasiums post-cytotoxic cytotoxic therapy, so post-PARP inhibitor in our case, which replaces the older term uh, therapy-related. And this new terminology is more precise as uh, it reflects our, a better understanding of the estriopathogenesis because, you know, PARP-related is incorrect because PARP inhibitors are not the only ones responsible for these malignancies in ovarian cancer patients. It is more likely that there's a, a synergistic interaction of multiple risk factors, including prior platinum-based chemotherapy. And so you have the progressive accumulation of DNA damage, and then uh, uh, it, it results in myeloid neoplasiums. So we Very need well. to be more precise in, in terminology, yeah. Excellent. Um, this next question is from Jennifer Davis Oliveira in the UK. Um, and she asks, uh, what is the most likely pathogenesis of myeloid neoplasms post PARP inhibitors for ovarian cancer? How can we investigate this further? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the pathogenesis is not completely understood and it needs uh, uh, further investigation. Uh, as far as we know, there are four interrelated key pathways that seem to contribute to the to the development. We have first the inherited predisposition. You know, uh, women with the germline BRCA mutations in BRCA genes or other DNA damage repair genes have a reduced ability to repair DNA damage and so a higher risk of acquiring uh, sporadic mutations and develop secondary malignancies. Then there's the, um, the direct DNA damage induced by cytotoxic agents such as platinum salts and PARP inhibitor. There are uh, bone marrow microenvironment alterations. 
And, uh, and finally, there's a, a more peculiar mechanism because um, PERP inhibitor may act as a, as a driver for CHIP, which stands for uh, clonal hematopoiesis of uh, indeterminate potential. Uh, basically, it is, uh, it is a precancerous clonal expansion of, uh, of a blood subpopulation from a single hematopoietic stem cell with, with acquired somatic mutations like the P53 uh, that give uh, a competitive advantage over other stem cells that can potentially result in leukemic transformation. So this is what we know so far. And of course, we need uh, more clinical and uh, translational research to shed more light on this. Yeah, and I want to actually thank you and the co-authors for putting together figure one in the in the review. It's a yeah. really fantastic uh, figure for those who are interested in really looking at all of the detailed uh, analysis of that pathogenesis. Now, the, the next question is, you know, certainly uh, there have been a number of recent major trials using PARP inhibitor in the first line. We have the SOLO1, the PRIMA, Paola, yeah. Athenomano. In the recurrent disease, the SOLO2, the NOVA, the aerial, um, have they looked at the at the frequency of myeloid neoplasms in those trials? Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Basically, um, long-term follow-up data showed uh, a higher risk of uh, developing myeloid neoplasms in the recurrent setting, which was not uh, likely reported in the first line. Uh, in, the, in the NOVA trial, for example, with Neuraparib, the, the incidence nearly doubled after a five-year follow-up with a reported rate of 3.5%. And also the SOLO2 trial with uh, Olaparib showed an impressive four-fold increase with an incidence of 8% after six years of follow-up, which was quite worrying, you know. Uh, but, but, but luckily, the, the long-term follow-up of, of, of those trials you mentioned in the, in the primary setting showed no new cases of myeloid neoplasiums with uh, an overall rate that settled at 1%. And so this is why we should prefer for inhibitor in the first-line setting whenever indicated, because we have uh, an improved risk-benefit ratio. Excellent. Uh, next question from Julio Bonaldo again, and, and he wants to go back to the topic of pathogenesis of myeloid neoplasms post-PARP. Um, he says, you explained the, the, the role of clonal uh, hematopoiesis, and, and in particular, the P53 chip variants. He wants to know what could be the practical and clinical implications of this information. Yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting question. This could be a promising field of research because uh, no biological factors that might favor the development of these ne uh, neoplasiums in patients under PARP therapy have been described. So the, the practical impl implication is that we could be able to screen patients for P53 chip variants from peripheral blood samples before starting the PARP inhibitor, assess the frequency of these variants, which should be 1-2% in healthy individuals, and so identify those patients who are already at higher risk of developing myeloid neoplasiums due to the prior exposure to, to platinum and other cytotoxic therapy, therapies. And uh, so ideally, we could like validate a score with uh, P53 chip to stratify patients based on their risk and also tailor their surveillance program during uh, PARP exposure. And, uh, you know, the European Institute of Oncology in, in Milan, under the supervision of uh, Professor Colombo, is currently working on this, uh, on this research area. Very well. Um, this next question comes from two of our fellows, Andrea Rosati, who you know uh, in, uh, in yeah. Rome, Gemelli and Nuria Agusti from Barcelona. 
They ask, um, how do you think the predictors of developing myeloid neoplasms can be effectively incorporated into the maintenance therapy algorithm in a real life setting? Um, so far, are there predictors of this risk that could effectively preclude the administration of a PARP inhibitor in patients who would otherwise potentially benefit from them? Yeah, yeah. Well, as uh, as, as we said, we uh, we still don't have any uh, biological predictors of the of the risk of myeloid neoplasiums in our clinical practice. P fifty three chip could become one. Um, what I think is that these predictors could be used just as an additional support to our decision making regarding the type and duration of uh, maintenance therapy, since we are talking about. Uh, extremely rare adverse events, especially if we use the PARP inhibitor in the first line, as is uh, the practice now, no one would deny the benefit of PARP inhibitor in BRCA mutated and HRD positive patients, uh, even if there is a higher baseline risk of these complications. Because, you know, the, the overall benefit of PARP, of PARP inhibitor far outweighs the potential risk of myeloid neoplasiums. Um, however, in the, in the challenging case, you we all know about of HRD-negative patients with the unfavorable response to platinum, then, you know, knowing that our patients has a higher risk for myeloid neoplasiums could impact on our strategy because we could prefer bevacizumab that has a completely different mechanism of action. Mm. And so this is, the I think, the only case where, I, where we could consider avoiding a, a PARP inhibitor. Yeah, excellent, excellent choice and point. Um, Teresa Pam from Austria, uh, she asked, do you think there's a point in establishing a discussion uh, or evaluation of family history, or even a genetic screening to identify those patients with a higher risk of developing these types of hematologic neoplasms. Uh, patients such as the ones with leaf remaining syndrome or germline mutations, uh, should there be a reconsideration of the use of PARP inhibitor in those patients? Yeah, yeah. Again, knowing if the patient has uh, high risk factors like we said the higher frequency of p53 chip or a positive family history or genetic screening, uh, it could support our decision-making in those uh, gray zones where we are not so sure about the real benefit of, uh, of PARP inhibitors. And so with all this data, we can properly counsel patients and balance the risks and the benefits of our treatment strategy. So it's useful, again, uh, to know also the, the, the family history and, uh, uh, you know, if there's like a genetic predisposition, yeah. Yeah. This next question um, talks about other types of cancers. Um, Jennifer Davis Oliveira, she says, is there a higher incidence of myeloid neoplasms in other cancer types post-PARP inhibitor treatment? Does the presentation differ in any way in other cancers? And is there any information that we can glean from myeloid neoplasms in other cancer types post-PARP inhibitor treatment? Uh, no, the answer is no, unfortunately, because uh, almost uh, all data we have on myeloid neoplasiums after PARP inhibitor are related to ovarian cancer, which was the first to receive uh, such an indication for PARP inhibitor. So uh, uh, in all real-life studies and pharmacovigilance databases on this topic, you know, more than 80% of PARP inhibitors were used for ovarian cancer patients. So I would say that we are the first specialists to face this uh, toxicity and probably other specialists will learn from our experience in this field. So uh, we don't have any backup on this. Yeah. Yeah. So now, Giuseppe, let's get into the uh, management. Um, there's a section on strategic management and you specifically talk about a four-step approach. Can you provide the details regarding this recommendation? 
Yeah, yeah, you know, um, we cannot prevent the serious complications. We don't have any biomarker, um, predictive biomarker, but what we can try to do is to make an early diagnosis and properly manage these patients. And we can use like a four-step approach. The first step is the tailored selection of PARP users, which means that we should avoid uh, a PARP-for-all strategy and properly select patients who could benefit from PARP inhibitor. Then uh, the second step is a, a, a proactive surveillance and monitoring in order to catch uh, those uh, warning signs as soon as possible. So educate patients on how to recognize uh, suspicious symptoms, uh, a baseline screening for pre-existing risk factors, such as the amount of prior cytotoxic therapies. Then we need to provide a strict follow-up program with uh, blood cell count before and during the PARP treatment. And then we need to be able to differentiate these neoplasiums with the transient PARP-related myelosuppression. And um, how can we do that? Briefly, the, the toxicity related to myeloid neoplasiums is more severe delayed and typically persist after several uh, weeks from PARP discontinuation. And then uh, the, the last step that is very important is the prompt referral to hematologists when, when there are unexplained, persistent, or recurrent blood abnormalities. So uh, with, with Professor Colombo, we thought about this four-step approach in order to uh, standardize uh, uh, the diagnosis of, of these, uh, of these uh, neoplasiums. So then that, to the follow-up question, uh, you know, when you do suspect that this may be the issue and you refer to the hematologist, what is their diagnostic workup and, and what do they do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, once you have a suspicion, we, we should refer the patient to an hematologist uh, because, you know, the diagnostic workup and treatment for these patients is the same of all myeloid uh, neoplasiums. So, uh, the diagnostic workup include uh, uh, several exams based on peripheral blood and uh, bone marrow analysis to achieve the right diagnosis and, uh, and classification of the disease. And, uh, and as regards the treatment, uh, this is very complex and should be personalized based on uh, prognostic risk factors. And the strategy actually varies from just uh, symptomatic th uh, therapies for cytopenias in lower risk patients where we use uh, transfusions, growth factors and, uh, and antibiotics to uh, chemotherapy and allogenic uh, hematopoietic cell transplantation in higher risk patients. So this, it's, it's, it's very complex to manage these patients. And of course, we should defer them to dermatologists. Yeah, so it sounds like the best strategy is whenever there is a suspicion, refer yeah. quickly to the hematologist. Now, yeah. Giuseppe, this next question from Nuria Agusti, she says, among all PARP inhibitors, Olaparib seems to be the strongest associated with myeloid neoplasms compared with other PARPs. Do you think this might reflect a specific higher risk for Olaparib, or instead it, it could be better explained by the results of a potential biases? I guess, in other words, Olaparib perhaps is the one that is most commonly used, and therefore that's the reason we see the myeloid neoplasms with higher frequency with Olaparib? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, what I think is that there are um, several bias that can explain why there has been this association between olaparib and uh, myeloid neoplasiums. Olaparib, you know, was the first PARP inhibitor on the market, and so we have more evidence available and, and uh, longer follow-up times, and the data for the other PARP inhibitor might be simply mature. And um, moreover, olaparib has more treatment indications compared with uh, other PARP inhibitors, so it is used more than the others. And finally, as you know, 
um, uh, BRCA mutations have been associated with an increased risk of myeloid neoplasians, and since Olaparib, compared to the others, is specifically used for BRCA-mutated patients, there is also this bias. Excellent. Um, this next question comes from uh, Ryan Khan at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York and Anissa Mburu in Kenya. Um, they wanted to talk a little bit more about how you talk to the patients uh, regarding this issue. How, how do we justify to patients the added risk of treating one cancer while potentially causing another cancer? And how do you counsel your patients regarding these issues? Have you ever had any patient who opts out of having a PARP inhibitor because of the concern for myeloid neoplasm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good question, this one. Uh, yeah, when, when you use the PARP inhibitor in the first-line setting, as we should all do now, it is quite simple because the risk for patients who receive the PARP inhibitor is uh, the same of those who don't, and is extremely low, around 1%. And also, in the first line, the duration of treatment is limited to two, three years, and so it is very unlikely that patients refuse the, the treatment. Uh, in the case we use the PARP inhibitor in a recurrent setting, we should properly counsel patients about the higher risk of developing these neoplasiums that can reach up to 8% in BRCA mutated patients. And uh, here also the duration of treatment should be carefully discussed with patients because, as you know, um, in a relapsed setting, the PARP inhibitor should be continued until a progressive disease or unacceptable toxicity. So the, the, the continuation of PARP inhibitor in those patients who haven't received it for several years should be carefully evaluated. And uh, it is reasonable to start thinking of stopping the treatment after, let's say, five years. But again, we don't have any clear recommendations on this. So the final decision should be discussed on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, it is unlikely that patients refuse the treatment even in the recurrent setting, but it happens that they ask for clarifications and that they decide to stop it after a few years. Very well. Uh, Ryan Khan uh, asks, uh, with new therapies um, in the myeloid dysplastic syndrome quickly advancing, if there were to be widely effective and feasible therapy uh, following PARP inhibitors developed in the future, in other words, if we get really much better at treating these myeloid neoplasms, how do you see this changing the recommendations and use of PARP inhibitors in this population? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, first, as far as I know, we are still far away from having effective treatments for secondary myeloid neoplasiums. The prognosis remains very poor. Uh, what I would like to stress is that we are not going to change our recommendations on a PARP inhibitor because as we said, the benefit of PARP inhibitor far outweighs the potential risk of these rare uh, neoplasiums. So this, uh, this whole discussion on uh, myeloid neoplasiums actually aims to raise awareness on this challenging topic in order to try to reduce the risk or at least early diagnose these uh, diseases. And we can do this by avoiding the PARP inhibitor when the benefit is not so clear, or probably in the next future, through uh, treatment de-escalation, which is something that we are starting to hear about in the post-PARP era. Uh, so the risk of these neoplasiums remains low, especially if we use the PARP inhibitor in the primary setting, and we should keep this in mind. We are not changing our recommendations for PARP inhibitors, but just be aware of these potential adverse events. So Teresa Pan asked about how can we be more supportive? Uh, in other words, uh, her question is, is there any attempt to find or is there already a supportive therapy to stabilize this hematologic deterioration 
during the period of therapy with PARP inhibitors? Yeah, well, I'm afraid we cannot really protect the bone marrow and more in general, rapidly dividing cells when we use this, uh, these therapies. Uh, of course, we can use uh, several blood supportive measures like iron, folic acid, growth factors, uh, corticosteroids like for uh, every cytotoxic therapy, but we can also stop the PARP inhibitor until we get a complete recovery. But this is just a support and cannot prevent the hematological toxicity related to myeloid neoplasia, which persists despite the treatment discontinuation and the supportive strategies. Yeah, so we need to work on that. Yeah. This next question, Andrea Rosati asked, uh, I think also an interesting point, because obviously for patients who develop a, a secondary malignancy, um, their, their concern is always, well, what are you going to do about the ovarian cancer? Um, so his question is, once the mechanism has been established and you have a diagnosis of a myeloid neoplasm, um, what are the options left uh, to offer the patient for their ovarian cancer? Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, I think, the most difficult question. Uh, you know, uh, treatment options for ovarian cancer patients who develop these uh, secondary myeloid neoplasiums are more, much more limited. And, uh, and also the oncologic treatment for ovarian cancer is not always feasible if needed, uh, you know, if at least one of the two tumors is in remission, then the specific treatment of the active one can be attempted. However, if both neoplasiums are progressing and require treatment, it is difficult to establish which is the priority. And there are no evidence-based guidelines to support specialists in handling these uh, challenging cases, because since ovarian cancer and myeloid neoplasiums represent two completely different cancers, um, it is difficult to find a therapeutic strategy that fits both cancer types without serious, serious toxicity. One, one attempt might be to control the ovarian cancer with uh, radiotherapy while mm. treating uh, myeloid malignancy, but for the moment, this is only anecdotal. We have uh, a little of experience at the European Institute of Oncology. Um, so the optimal management remains uh, an unmet clinical need and we should uh, uh, and should be discussed in referral centers with expertise and experience in the field, yeah. Excellent, and uh, Giuseppe, as a last question, um, obviously you're very familiar with what's happening in this, uh, in this area. Uh, where do we go from here as it pertains to further research in this matter? Is there anything that um, is out there that you can, you can see as potentially promising? Yeah, yeah, we have uh, a lot going on. Uh, first, there's, of course, an unmet need for more real-life data with uh, longer follow-up periods to properly assess myeloid neoplasiums. Then we need to, to, to have predicted biomarkers and the research around P53 cheat could be very promising. Uh, we should also deepen our knowledge about the pathogenesis, so clarify the exact role of PARP inhibitor and the contribution of prior cytotoxic uh, treatments and BRCA mutations as well. Um, another interesting point is that we don't know if the risk of these uh, neoplasiums will increase in the future with uh, a PARP challenge, you know, and uh, PARP combined regimens, for example, with uh, cell cycle inhibitors, which are emerging as uh, new promising strategies for ovarian cancer patients. And finally, I would say that there is uh, increasing the attention, and this is very interesting, um, on the potential use of next generation highly selected PARP inhibitors which target just one of the PARP enzymes. So uh, basically uh, more selective PARP inhibitors that could minimize 
the adverse events while maintaining the effectiveness. And we already have some phase one trials currently ongoing. So there's, uh, there's a lot on our plate, yeah. Well, Giuseppe, thank you so, so much. Once again, another uh, great podcast uh, from you. We learned so much about PARP inhibitors uh, from your uh, podcast, and we really, truly appreciate your time. Uh, we appreciate your sending your work to the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, and we really look forward to your productivity out of the Mayo Clinic over the next year or so. Okay. So hopefully we'll have you back for some uh, podcast related to the work you're doing there with uh, Bill Clivey and Andrea Mariani. Thank you so much, and thank you for all of your uh, work and the collaborators on this uh, review, as well as uh, Professor Nicoletta Colombo. Yeah, thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs>